Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Minisports. Anything and everything for the classic mini since 1967. This week, my guest is Julian Noel. Now, if you've ever been on one of these banger rallies, whether it's Rust to Rome, the Mongol rally, there are a myriad of these banger rallies originating in the UK, uh, taking old cars to interesting places and leaving them there. The man who started it was Julian. Uh, you'll find out why he did that. I went to one of his rallies back in the day. It's one of the greatest things I've ever done. He is, there's so much more to him than that, though. I was really glad he agreed to do the show. My guest this week, Julian Knoll. I'm reading Classic and, classic and Sports Car, mm. and I see a picture. And I think, when I think about it, that picture, that photograph, is one of the most influential photographs I've ever seen, for me, in my life. And I'll tell you what it was. It was, a, I think, a Hillman Hunter... Oh, good. It's, it was Elman Hunter. On a beach, somewhere, I didn't know where, it turned out to be Africa. There was a man stood on the roof, and he was ironing. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. The very first uh, Plymouth to Dakar rally that didn't start in Plymouth and didn't end in Dakar. Exactly. Mm. Approximately eight months after seeing that photograph in a car magazine, I was in a featureless landscape for the first time in my entire life, me and my good friend, Paul Scanlon, who's been on the show with me and is a great guy, a very talented mechanic and a very... For an Irishman, and I'm going to say this, I'm going to get in trouble for this, for an Irishman, a very calm and equable man, because most of my friend, most of my Irish friends, and I am of Irish descent, so mm. at least on my uh, mother's side, and I think on my father's side as well. Uh, Paul's a very calm guy as well. I was driving along in the disputed territory between all the UN-administered territory there in, in West Africa. Yeah. And I just slammed the brakes on. And Paul, Paul just said, why did you do that? I said, get out of the car. I think he thought the car was about to set on fire. <laughs> get out of the car. I said, look. He said, what do you mean, look? I can't see anything. I said, exactly. Exactly, look. We are the only things in the landscape. No rocks, no trees, no sand dunes, no water, no nothing, no buildings, no cars, nothing, as far as the eye can see in every direction. And I said, this may never happen to us again in our whole lives. How many people have been in a completely featureless landscape like that? And I've got you. I don't know whether to thank... Yes, to thank Julian uh, for that. <laughs> Where did the idea, because you are, you and your team are the originators of the wildly popular Banger Rally. We've got Rust to Rome, Mongol Rally, and it, it's not just here in the UK, it's all over Europe, they're doing it in the States now, but you are the original, and I think the best, bang, uh, Banger Rally. I think, yeah, two, two sort of strands to that, really. I suppose um, cars second-hand cars in Britain are possibly the cheapest in the world because they're right-hand drive and therefore um, people don't um, buy cars in Britain to sort of sell on in Kazakhstan or wherever because the steering wheel's on the incorrect side. So 
second-hand cars in Britain just ludicrously cheap, uh, which means a one-way route makes a lot of sense because you don't want to drive all the way back from Africa having driven the way there. And, and the second was a sort of piss take on the old um, Paris-Dakar rally, which was um, very expensive. Um, I, read a, I read a stat when I was... when I'd signed up to your rally um, that Mitsubishi were up to a million dollars US a day to compete at, in Paris-Dakar. Mm. And I just thought, people don't realise the cost of that is, is passed on to you in the showroom. And really, are you that, when you're buying a Galant Estate or a Pajero, are you that impressed that, that some French geezer... I mean, here's the thing, Julian. I, I've watched the original Super 8 Paris-Dakar home movie. Mm. Was he called Thierry Sabine, the geezer that started it? That's right. Yeah. Right, and it was all on motorbikes, you know, to start with. And they were, do you know what they were on? They were on road bikes. They were on... Airhead BMWs and Yamaha, Yamaha twin-cylinder road bikes. And they're setting off from Paris. Thierry Sabine stood on a, on a dais of some description with a loud hailer going, see you in, see you in Dakar. Yeah. And these Frenchmen just did, like, almost street clothes. And you think, you madmen, do you realise <laughs> what's coming? It was kind of a, 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 a lad's day out, and I think, it had got it had got very crazy, and and it was just too, and they were just like Group B. They were all going too fast, and, and people who talk about Group B rallying in sort of gung ho terms, they've never been really fast in a rally car. They go, oh yeah, oh they banned it. What a shame, what a tragedy. <laughs> really? Yeah, you get in. I've been in. I've been in with Marco Allen. I've been in with. Um, Mark Higgins, Peter Solberg, and I've been in with the poet, the master, Ari Vatanen. You get in a car with that geezer and then tell me that you think Group B shouldn't have been banned because every few seconds you think you're going to die. <laughs> and that's, not, that's just in a regular rear-wheel drive car. Mm. So I think what you did, and this isn't just going to be unalloyed praise of you for an hour, but I think I want to talk about all sorts of other things because there's way more to you than just, than just Plymouth Dakar. Um, I think you brought back the original idea of, of Paris-Dakar, which is a great adventure for ordinary people. Yeah, and people without uh, that much money, that's an important thing because uh, so many of these elitist sports r rely on corporate sponsorship or people with uh, a load of banknotes. So, um, and people with no rallying skills because um, the original Plymouth-Dakar is very much... Um, you know, for people who've never, never driven in sand, never driven off-road, it's a sort of huge learning experience for them, really. Well, my, my another, another inspiration for me in this, you'll know this guy. Again, I can, I can confidently say his name, knowing that you won't go, who? Hmm. Um, Ginger Baker, the drummer. Ah, yeah. The, I, I, I was going to say a rock drummer, but I think he'd, if he was still with us, I think he'd be rather upset if I said that, because I think he considered himself a jazzer, really. But after the demise of Cream, when they all couldn't bear to be... I don't think they could ever bear to be in the same room at any time, really, but they were brilliant together. But he went to Africa to do two things. One, play with Falakuti, uh, the great sort of African uh, originator of high-life music and, and Afrobeat and all that sort of stuff. And two, to rally. But in a completely standard brand-new Range Rover that he, that he just bought from a showroom and then set off for Africa. And I thought, 
that for me is is the kind of motorsport that I'm interested in. Because to be honest, most motor racing now is so clinical and so expensive and so blocked off to ordinary people. Even regular club racing is ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And I just thought, why can't you just get in a car and drive? Is that what you thought? Yeah, and I think um, the, the element of risk is, is a good thing because it gets people to focus on uh, <laughs> you know, what they should be doing, like having enough water in the desert and all that sort of thing. Tell us about that first trip, Julian. How did it go? Well, um, it went... Um, there was a tiny bit of cheating because a bloke who'd done it before um, was sort of um, filming it and he, he was very careful not to offer any advice. But I'm sure that if we'd started to do something really stupid uh, out in the desert in the elderly Rover 213s that uh, were the lowest car in the world, so the worst <laughs> car in the world for the desert, he would have stepped in and said, no, yeah, you, should, uh, you shouldn't go into the dunes anymore. I've got to tell you a story about the 213 before we go any further. Um, as, a, as a journalist, I've worked for all kinds of people, and the, the best organisation I've ever worked for in terms of the way they treated me and the way they paid me was uh, Stern, the German uh, news magazine. I did some things for them, and they came over to Manchester to do a, a, an item about the Manchester music scene at the height of Manchester. Yeah. And although I know, I, I, I knew that you knew who Ginger Baker was, I'm not going to assume that you're aware of the whole Manchester thing. Nope. But it existed, and they came over, and they asked me to get a hire car um, from the airport to pick them up in the photographer and the journalist, and I thought I could make a bit of money. I did make a bit of money, because... There was a 213 Rover 2. <laughs> Rover two. Was it also a Honda Belayed, Julian? It was. And yeah, yeah. Uh, not a bad car, really, unless well, you take it off-road. Yeah, well, um, and so the, I sort of said, I'm after a deal. Can I do a deal with you, mate? And the guy said, you can have that thing for the same price as the smallest car that we do. I said, right, I'll take it. And I was driving these two Germans around in it for the best part of a week, and I think on the last day, uh, Tillman, the photographer, said to me, Steve... Why did you rent such a terrible car? It is really terrible. <laughs> like this. And, I, and I said, it was the only one they had. They were, <laughs> they were very busy, but they'd been polite enough. I think they were expecting a Mercedes. Yeah. They'd been polite enough not to mention how bad it was. But like you say, possibly the least... Why was it the least suitable vehicle to take to the desert? I think, I think it was so low. In a way, uh, if you're desert driving, 4 by 4s are fine, but 2 by 2s are also fine if they're high off the ground. So... Like a, a Peugeot 205, um, you know, sits fairly high off the ground. Even the um, uh, Rover Maestro uh, sits fairly high off the ground. Well, cars used to sit a lot higher off the ground, didn't they? Especially yeah. French cars. Exactly. Uh, so um, I think, you know, high off the ground helps you. Um, low to the ground means you bottom out and you rip the fuel lines and you um, find rocks going through the passenger footwell. So it's, um, yeah, not, not a brilliant idea. So... Ex- explain the route and, and how how planned was it? Or did you just say, there's Plymouth, there's Dakar, off we go? Well, I think some people, but basically there's no planning. Everyone's told that they should plan for themselves. And some people um, just didn't plan, didn't even bring a sleeping bag and slept in their cars. Others sort of planned the route and everything and then had to take up, tear up their plans because um, the route turned out to be the wrong one. So really, um, planning is voluntary. You can have just as much fun as 
uh, a planned guy. If you um, don't plan, just put a few tins of pot noodle in the back of your car and um, bring your passport and a credit card, and that's that's all you need to do. So, um, and the route, um, first two days, very boring, driving a day through France, 600 miles, day through Spain, 600 miles, um, get to the bottom of Spain surfers, capital Tarifa, um, have a few beers, night stop, and then um, you're in Morocco, and um, and and there the fun begins because um, you can go into the Atlas Mountains and get stuck in the snow. <laughs> you can do all sorts of things in Morocco. <laughs> Morocco is such an interesting country. It's for me, it's the perfect mix of the East and the West. It it has all kinds of things. For instance, Casablanca has an incredible array of excellent radio stations. Ah. I mean, I, I am a radio man, and a lot of the trip was done in radio silence. Mm. We just took cassettes, which led to a gag in Suta, because we went in through Suta, Paul and I, yep. the Spanish enclave in North Africa, from Algeciras to Suta, and it led to one of the best gags, I think. No, it is. I don't think it is one of the best gags. We had cassettes uh, in our larder, and the the customs guy in Suta said, do you have any pistols? And I said, no, but we've got Elvis Costello and the Stranglers. Oh, come on, Julian, that's a great gag. Good. And I actually, actually, that is good. Yeah, I actually sorry, I said it. <laughs> Paul, Paul was mortified because he thought, but I, I, I was guessing that the guy would just, it would just fly so far over his head, mm. it was like a seven force. It was, it was, you know, it was 38,000 feet over this guy's head. Yeah. The fact that he'd offered to sell us guns and he was the custom official, I thought, welcome to Africa. Mm. <laughs> <Classic>. <laughs> so, like I said, Casablanca had incredible uh, radio stations. Um, Marrakesh was just, oh, one of the, one of the, Again, the most interesting places that I've been. I mean, one of the things that 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 got me about just doing it once was that I'd arrived somewhere that seemed to be well worth a week of my time, and I was there for a day. Yeah, that was the only thing. But I don't think any of the time that I spent there, and I think we we took forever. We took a month to do the whole thing. Well, that's the way to do it, actually. I mean, I think the, the problem is so many people who do it are are wage slaves who can't get more than, than three weeks off tops, whereas uh, doing it in a month is, is an absolute win. Yeah, so we cheated a bit, <laughs> Paul and I, in that we took our fantastic Lardineva Len, who we, we developed an, a, a, a bond. I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to, to sit here and say it. We bonded with that excellent Russian car, which saved so many people. We lost count. Paul, unlike me, is a very meticulous man, yeah. um, and was Young Mechanic of the Year in 1980-something, so took an array of spares, not just for our vehicle, but, you know, which could be utilised to make almost any vehicle function. Um, but he took proper towing straps, not ropes or chains or any nonsense like that, Proper nylon towing straps with like eight tons of you know braking strain on them. We towed so many people out of the sand with that larder, but like you say, we ran we ran two wheel drive most of the time and only four wheel drive when it was required because 
you know, even though it's only a 1600, um, it was pretty heavy on the juice. But again, there was something... There was something incredibly that added to the adventure, the fact that you had to carry water and petrol, water and fuel and all that stuff. It all added to it. And, uh, of course, Nevers don't really do it now because they're going up in value. They're seen as sort of classic cars, which uh, I never expected. Yeah, we we found our Neva, which... Uh, lives on to this day and does good work out there in the Gambia, we know, because uh, people have been back and sent us pictures. Our car was, our, our larder was bought by the Gambian National Olympic Committee, the GNOC, who pressed it into service um, to carry around athletic equipment, you know, javelins and shots and hurdles and stuff like that. We've got a picture of Len repainted white with GNOC written on the side, and the rear's full of discuses and stuff like that. And we know it's Len because the auto windscreens sticker, which was put on upside down, was still in the back window. So we knew it was like... Although when we got there, one of the very first things that we saw in Banjul in the Gambia was a large building with larder in huge letters written on the side and the yacht, the boats, the ship, uh, uh, the symbol of larder. And we thought, all right, so they were here, obviously, because look, written in giant letters on the side of that building. So... When the auction came, and of course the cars are all auctioned off for, for charity, we thought Len might get good money because, and he did. We we got, I think we got fifteen hundred pounds equivalent for for the charity, which was great. But which bit, which bit of the original one was was the most problematic for you? I think the um, the bit, uh, well, the bit with any you know real danger is the the desert in Mauritania. So basically. Um, Right now, there's a tarmac road across Mauritania, so you don't need to do the desert. Back in the early years, the year that you did it, um, there was no tarmac at all. So you're forced to go uh, through the Sahara Desert with guides. Now, that sounds like it makes it a lot safer, and it probably does. But the problem with a a guide at the front of a convoy and um, five or six cars in the convoy is the tail end Charlie, if they stop and nobody in the car's head spot that they've stopped, then they're totally lost because um, you can't go back and find a car because the dunes will, will hide everything. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we've had, we had one guy who stopped to photograph a camel, uh, couldn't find the convoy. The convoy didn't notice that he'd stopped. Um, he then got stuck, um, and uh, there's no rescue service. So the people in the cars ahead knew that he'd failed to make it by nightfall, so um, they hired a, a helicopter in the capital city, uh, Nuak Chot, and uh, plucked him out of the desert at their own expense, which was, uh, l- luckily, um, he had a mobile phone uh, with a signal, which in the Sahara Desert is, is a rare thing, so he could, uh, he was in touch with them. T- took them about three or four days to uh, organize a helicopter, but uh, they did save him and his co-driver. At risk of sounding incredibly pretentious, but I don't care. I really don't care about that. I'm going to say it anyway. The things that are dividing us at the moment and and all of the upset and anger that seems to be about, if you put those same people on both sides of that argument in the middle of the Sahara Desert and every single difference melts away in that sun. We were, I'll tell you a quick story. We were in the middle of that, territory where it's just featureless hard-baked sand, not really dunes 
following the tyre tracks of other vehicles. We didn't have a guide, we were just following tyre tracks. And then we were in a four-car convoy. One of the cars was a VW Jetta driven by two Dublin bus drivers. <laughs> and uh, they they won't mind me telling this. One of them nearly drowned on the trip. He, he, he went swimming, which wasn't a great idea, and he, he almost drowned. But this is another story. Um, they got a flat. They got their first flat. I mean, driven all the way from Dublin, they got their first flat in the middle of Sahara. Uh, but no problem because, of course, your organisation had told people that they had to take... Was it two or three spare wheels? Well, uh, three, ideally. Well, they had three. They had, they had one in the boot and they had two on a substantial roof rack. So we thought, this is going to be ten minutes. Now, for some reason, on this journey, we all quickly adopted roles. And my role, because I was with a very talented mechanic and a, and a, a guy who runs a business as an auto electrician and all that, I thought, why would you get your hands dirty when these two are here? You, you make the tea and, and do... So I ended up as cook, head cook and what, bottle washer, and any excuse, and I got my burners out and started to make tea. So I got my Bunsen burner, I was making tea, and I thought, ten minutes, we'll all have a cup of tea, the Irishman will have changed the wheel and off we'll go. And I could hear cursing in a sort of broad, duffling accent, <laughs> what the fuck, hey, the fuck, hey, all this sort of stuff. The first wheel that they put on, the stud pattern was wrong. It didn't yeah. fit. So they threw that away and got another one down off from the roof to put that on. Pushed it on. Didn't fit. Mm. Wrong stud pattern. (laughs) All these men, these two guys, had bought three wheels all the way from Dublin to the Sahara Desert. Not one single one of them actually fitted on their VW Jetta. So this isn't the end of the world. You know, like I said, I've got two really talented mechanics. They're they're working out what's the best way to bodge one of these wheels onto uh, onto the VW. We saw a dust cloud coming in the distance, and it, it eventually turned out to be one of those large Mercedes trucks that they made in the 70s, one of those iconic, are they the 400 series Mercedes diesel trucks that a lot of people used to, to go around the world and into inhospitable places, with a lot of Belgians on board. This Belgian guy jumps out, and he's sort of, you know, almost black from the sun, and he's got goggles on and all this he looks like he's out of mad max too and in english he said you have a problem and i said these irishmen have brought three wheels from all the way from dublin and none of them fit on the car and he said oh is is uh, vw no, no problem and he went and got a wheel out the back of the out the back of the uh, mercedes oh it went straight on the car i made him a cup of tea and he refused to take any payment and disappeared off in a cloud of dust oh. and i was furious I was absolutely furious. And I told them, I said, if I had been so stupid as to do what you two have done, my bones would have been whitened on this hard-baked sand before somebody turned up with a wheel that fitted straight onto my car. For you two, it took ten minutes for somebody to arrive with a wheel, which he then... And they were just there with sort of big smiles on their face, and I thought, if anyone ever says the look of the Irish, I say, right, well, let me tell you a story about the look of the Irish, because that's the best one that I know. Brilliant. It was... But, like I said, like I said, if you put people in that environment, they don't even have to be told to cooperate and to work together. They just do it, because at the end of the day, we're all people, and you can't... You can't 
leave people. You can't leave people behind. You can't say, oh, never mind, he can sort himself. You can't do that. Who would do that? What sort of person? <laughs> yep, good Samaritan rules in Africa. Which was which was the car that you took on, on the first trip, and where did, where did you find it? Because, we, like I said, we found ours at the side of the road. It was literally, I think there was a £500 limit on the purchase price. Ours was free. It would have been abandoned, a larder neither. Well, uh, I uh, also took a larder. I took um, the two-wheel drive uh, larder Riva. And, um, again, in the early years, that was Britain's cheapest car. They were being chucked out. The importation had ended. People were worried about spares. Um, and then in the uh, 21st century, values started to go up. And they, there's a Facebook page for larders in the UK with 4,000 members. Um, and uh, they're driftable because they're rear-wheel drive. Yeah. And... Um, so, yep, here in 2020, the rally continues, but without any larders, because who would have guessed that uh, prices for larders would have just made them too expensive now? I'm trying to think what I would what I would take. And I, I was looking at your website, your excellent website last night, and the homepage is a view of the Sahara. And I just thought, oh, I want to go back. <laughs> I want to go back to the desert. But I was thinking, because there's nowhere else like it, is there? There's, there's, there's simply, one of the greatest nights of my life was on the Spanish road, which, of course, isn't really a road at all, is it, Julian? No, and uh, the, the, the lovely bit about the Spanish road is um, uh, there are all these rumours about a minefield, which may or may not be true, and then you see cars blown up at the side of the road, and you think, bloody hell, it, it is true. We we found a mine. We found a Soviet, what was obviously a Soviet tank mine. Mm. We've got pictures of it. Brilliant. But we also, my fr- a friend of mine was like, "Oh, uh, oh, uh, be careful!" and all this. And I said, "Dude, it takes tons of pressure to set one of these things off." The, you know, that that was my understanding. Yeah. And I mentioned it to a tank commander pal of mine, and he said, "Oh, those Soviet tank mines were really dodgy. You could just picking it up could have set it off." And I was like, "Oh dear." Oh. <laughs> But, like I said, well, the greatest nights, I'd, I'd say for why, we, 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 we got a guide for the Spanish road, not a road, really. But, um, and we, we had to camp in the desert. And three of us went and, and out to, walked away from, the, from our caravan, literally a caravan, not a, not a box, a wooden box, literally a caravan, a group of vehicles. And um, we lay on this rock and looked up at the, the night sky. And I say to people, if you've never looked at the night sky from the Sahara, you've never seen the night sky. Yep. It was just mind-blowing, Julian. It was worth going just to see that, to see the sky as it with zero pollution, zero, zero light pollution, to see the sky as it really is. And, and I don't know if... There must be places in, 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 on the steppe uh, in Russia or places in Canada, in the middle of Canada, where you can look up at the sky and it's like that. But I don't know if it would be as clear as it is, is there because you, you're so much closer to the equator. Exactly, and uh, the Milky Way is just oh, awesome. Incredible. Worth going just to see that, but, but there, was, there was so much, so much more to the, to the trip. How many times have you, have you, have you been back? Because you, you operate one to Mali now, don't you? Yeah, so, so I've, I've done it well. I've done the full rally only once, and then four or five times after that, I've done little sections, you know, fly yeah. out en route and jump in a car or go to the finishing line and, and push south. Um, but the, um, the Mali end is always um, a mite um, 
you know, buttock clenching because Mali isn't the most peaceful of countries. Yeah. So um, this last year, um, I said, um, if you're a team going to Mali, you pay no entry fee. If you're a team going to Gambia, you pay the usual entry fee. And the aim was just, you know, the Malians need money more than the Gambians. So we, we want, you know, as many cars to go to Mali as possible. And, um, yeah, since 2003, when it all started, we've never had any problems with any teams on their way to Mali because, um, you know, Al-Qaeda and everybody seem to operate in the, in the badlands around Timbuktu, uh, whereas we're just going to the, uh, the capital city of Bamako and um, got a lovely uh, Malian contact called Sonny who uh, has got the finger on the pulse and, you know, contacts in government. So um, I'm glad that the Mali end is, is uh, prospering. The last time I saw you, Julie, you—I think you'd just got back from Moscow, but you'd gone out there to buy perhaps the least interesting car in many respects that I've ever seen, <laughs> because it, it lacked—it lacked the the distinctiveness or the the eccentric, the engineering eccentricity of a Moscovich or a Vortberg or a, a a Skoda or a Lada. It looked like a sort of cheap. Korean car, yeah. I can't even remember what it was, and I think you'd gone to get it specifically for those reasons, and then driven it back. <laughs> I think, um, yes, because uh, it's nice to own the only car of its kind in England. What was it, Julian? So it was an Ocker, so an Ocker is, or was, Russia's people's car that failed. It looked like an Uno, was it? Mm, was it? it very like an Uno, and uh, but less good. <laughs> and, uh, so it failed because um, a bit like the Tata Nano failed in India. No Russian wants to buy Russia's, Russia's cheapest car because um, they're judged as, as being poverty-stricken. So they'd, they'd rather buy a second-hand larder instead. And, um, but it's not as bad as, um, you know, the car of use uh, said it was. I mean, it um, uh, gets you over 50 to the gallon. I jumped in it in Moscow. In three days later, I jumped out at Exeter. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> there's, a, there's a short story by Alexi Sale, the stand-up comedian and, and motoring writer, as he, as he became, uh, called Barcelona Plates, about how he, he goes to Barcelona and drives all the way back to his flat in North London. It's, a, it's fiction. Uh, all the way back to his flat in North London and all the way back to Barcelona and sort of just returns the car. Instead of having a holiday, it's holidays to drive back to his house, have a cup of tea and drive back. And it, it sounds a bit like that. How do you even start on a project like that? You think, OK, there's the Ocker, perhaps the world's most unappealing car. I fancy one. How do you even start to look for one that you can buy? Well, um, Russian auto trader... Russian is, auto trader! Uh, gives you an idea of prices. <laughs> So you've then got to contact your Russian friend in Moscow and say, um, I'd like one. You pick the one because, you know, I can't view cars in the UK. And um, so he messaged back and says, no, I'm scared about picking one. We'll both pick one. So fly out, um, go out on a Saturday morning. And um, I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, he doesn't want to spend his whole Saturday looking at cars. So I just, we looked at the first, the first one we looked at, I said, yeah, I'll have it. Um, and then, um, oh, the paperwork took the rest of the day. So go to the police station where men with very big hats uh, look at the car, scowl, um, <laughs> much, much paper, passport, 
and uh, by tea time, the car's in my name. Um, so literally, um, uh, bought some sandwiches, uh, water, um, got my um, sat-nav working on my smartphone, and um, next morning um, headed for Latvia. Julian, I was once entering Swaziland, if you're part of the expression, <laughs> And the gentleman at the, uh, who was very smartly dressed, he was on his own at this remote border crossing, he said to me, in perfect English, because, of course, Swaziland, uh, you're very keen on, on the royal family and everything British. When he saw British passports, he, he stiffened up. He stood an inch taller. And he said, the reason for your visit? And I said, tourism. And he said, tourism? Like that? And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> oh. But... When you were those men in the big hats, were they not suspicious? Were they not thinking there is no way that anyone would want to come from England to buy this terrible car unless they had some sort of ulterior motive? Did they think you were a spy or a drug dealer or something like that? They, um, I think they, they were quite relaxed. The only people who were suspicious were the EU border, who, um, when I arrived at the EU border, which was the, the way into Latvia, um, they basically, um, um, you know, gave me a very dirty look. So, um, <laughs> um, was, uh, yeah, faintly worrying. And uh, it was like being treated as a refugee because, um, you know, there's a sort of um, putting paperwork on a, on a pile of other people's papers and then ignoring it for four hours. And um, just generally the sort of sneering and derision. <laughs> Um, what, which, what engine is it? Is it a three-cylinder? It's um, it's a two. A two? So it's wow. A half, half a larder engine, basically. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not even a little revy bike-type two-cylinder engine. It's half a larder engine. Yeah, but it was quite quite uh, reasonably revy and thrummy and was in, vibration. I, I, for reasons that don't need to be... As you know, I've got, a, like you, a motley collection of odd... Uh, and, and inexpensive cars, which give me great pleasure, but no one else would really be interested in. Uh, but all of them are currently in storage, and I've been, for obvious reasons, uh, there are no events to go to with them. There's nothing to do with them. I'm working every single day at the moment, so um, I've just put them in storage, and I've been driving, mainly driving, a Suzuki Wagon R, ah. which is a remarkable little car. The engine is completely unburstable. Mm. Rev the what's-its off it. But it has a strange characteristic in that if you're on the highway at 68 miles an hour, it's exactly 3,000 RPM on the flat in fifth gear. It has five gears, 3,000 RPM, 68 miles an hour, fine. You try and go two miles an hour faster, it's hellish. <laughs> it's like the entire car is transformed into... It's almost like being pushed inside a giant tumble dryer, and it, it switched onto the fast setting. And I'm, think, I'm wondering if that car was similar in that it had a cruising speed above which you went at your peril. Yeah, I think um, after driving that car such a huge mileage in three days, I suddenly thought really small engines, two cylinders or three cylinders, are fantastic. And, and that little bit of extra vibration makes the car much more interesting. It's not a bad thing, vibration. It's, it's actually a good thing. And then uh, um, I think Suzuki are good at really small engines. And, um, Daihatsu. Daihatsu. Great that's that's absolutely brilliant Daihatsu three-cylinder engine. Um, the, uh, yeah, those, those small engines, they're thrummy, they're willing, they're, they're surprisingly revvy. 
and of course, really fuel efficient. And you just rev the nuts off them. <laughs> they love it. So, Julia, what happens when you get back to the UK in a vehicle like that? How on earth do you that? Did you just stick it in your big shed and forget it, or or did you think, right, I'm going to use this, or did you did you? I'm wondering how you use it in the UK once it's arrived. Well, um, arrived. registering it in the UK is um, not that easy. Um, We've got incredibly. We are so lucky in this country in what we're allowed. I don't think people realise this, what we, we are and aren't allowed to use on the road. We're so lucky. Yeah, we are. And basically, if the car's over 10 years old, you can register anything in the UK. And um, so long as the paperwork looks genuine when it reaches the <laughs> DVLA, then they're happy to sort of accept it. And the more paperwork, the better. So I'd imagine Russian paperwork was, like, extensive. Yep, lots of translations. And... Um, So that car is, um, I was going to say it's on the road at the moment, but it needs a new water pump, which I've ordered off eBay. Um, eBay's changed changed things. It's changed the game, hasn't it? Yeah. Because you, how many, I'll give you an example, not of a car, but of a camera. I know somebody who had a camera that hadn't taken a picture for over 70 years because there was a crack in the focusing ring, Mm. and obviously it was leaking light. Um. He found one on eBay, and he, okay. and, and he took the first... He showed me the... He said, that's the first photograph that camera's taken in over 70 years. Look at it, it's amazing. And I thought, wow. And I said, how much... Was it expensive? He went, no, no, it was a few quid. It was like... But it was just someone had, had a broken one that was broken in another way, and they'd taken it apart and were selling the parts off individually. And, and I just... I put a search thing, and it alerted me that there was one. I said, was it here? He said, no, no, it was in Italy. I went, all right, okay. It's it's really changed the world of old cars and motorcycles, hasn't it? Vehicles that didn't turn a wheel for decades are back on the road. Yeah, it really helps. And uh, the worst thing now are the the owners of most classic cars seem to um, love acquiring them, and then they hoard them out in open fields and um, <laughs> away. And, um, it's something offensive. People should almost not be allowed to buy cars if. They're guaranteed to wreck them. There should be a minimum usage. It should be, if you don't do more than 1,500 miles a year, the car should be taken from you. It should be taken from you and given to people who will will look after it. That's why I really like this end of the car world, of the classic car world. The odd, the unusual, the salt rally with all of the Moscoviches and Wartburgs and Trabants and people like Dave Richards and Ed Hughes and James Walsh, who've all been on this show... Um, who drive classic cars every single day. Dave Richards drives his Trabant almost every single day of the week. Uh, he could drive a modern car, he could afford a modern car, he just doesn't really like them. So, And I don't, I'm don't. i not that keen on, on, on most modern cars, so I prefer to drive an older one. The worst thing I, I think you could do, and, and, and I like the other end of it, the, 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 the guys I know, who, this is crazy, but the guys I know who own W.O. Bentleys all drive the hell out of them. I don't know, I must know 30 guys who own those old proper Bentleys, WA Bentleys. They drive the hell out of them. We went in a five-car convoy when it was the uh, 100th anniversary down to Silverstone from the northwest. And we overtook everything. We spent most of the time in the fast lane <laughs> in five cars that were built in the 1920s. People's reactions were brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> but why on earth, Julian, would you would you do that? Why do, Is it because old men like to hoard things which their children then sell as soon as they die? I think, um, well, I wish uh, 
latter bit of, of what you said was true. I mean, children would tend to just put them in a skip, actually. But, um, yeah, I think m- m- half of the car-owning, classic car-owning fraternity cherish their cars, look after them, and, um, you know, are a tribute to the movement. And the other half buy hopeless cases, or cars <laughs> that are not hopeless. That's me. They, 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 uh, yeah, they, they're not likely, though. Uh, they, no. you know, will buy even quite a nice car and then something will go wrong and they'll just park it in the field and ignore it. Um, and, and financially, it's ludicrous. I mean, why buy an expensive thing and turn it into rust over five years and lose all your money? Yeah, but in the pub, you can tell people that you've got an MGB or a Triumph Spitfire or a Citroen DS or what it is. Even if it's sat there in bits, you can still tell people and, and perhaps it makes you seem, this is terrible, I'm, I might be getting a bit too... Uh, a bit too inward-looking for for this for this light-hearted chat, mm. but um, it, it gives makes people seem more interesting. I think some people ride yeah. mot- motorbikes because it, they think it makes them seem more interesting. Mm. And here's the thing: it doesn't. <laughs> okay. The thing about those bikes is you can store them indoors much more easily than you can store, you know, a fleet of eight cars, fleet of eight motorbikes. You could probably. How many cars have you got, Julian? Come on, be honest. Well, I, I'm, I'm eight at the moment, but I'm, I'm in single figures, so I feel I'm not, I'm not a criminal now. And, and I have always, in the time that I've known you, the brief time that I've known you, I wish I'd known you longer, um, I've known you as, as being a fan of these odd, unusual, um, Soviet-made uh, vehicles. And I always thought, I would, but, but you strike me as, a, as, as a, a proper English gent. I think most people... Um, it, coming across, you might assume that you were a man for a, an Alvis or a Bristol or a Riley or something like that. And I thought, I wonder if Julian's secretly got a, a stash of fantastic old British sporting automobiles. Is it time to admit that, Julian? Uh, sadly, um, <laughs> no. I'd be a richer bloke if I had a stash of, of, of old British classics. But um, I think now the reason for buying uh, Soviet stuff is very cheap, easy to work on and less bad than people say they are. And obviously, in the 1990s, people looked at larders as being piles of crap. Uh, but now, um, the difference between a you know, Triumph Dolomite and a larder is, is, is nothing. And, um, and there are more larders in the UK than Triumph Dolomites now. It's extraordinary. But, um, no, I think, I think there's, there's absolutely no snobbery when you own cars for the people. That, that's the real benefit. You what, never... what, what were you brought up with, Julian? What was your first car? Um, well, because I was brought up in Turkey, the um, uh, family... first car was a Mercedes 300 Adenauer, if that's the right pronunciation, then a 57 Chevy, uh, which <laughs> wow. we bought in 67, <laughs> uh, 10 years old, and then onto a series of Turkish cars because we weren't that well off, so things called Anadols, which are made out of fiberglass. That sounds like something that you get in a tube from Boots yeah. the Chemist. So, um... That's not a bad gag, Julian, come on. That's, that I, is, that's, that's, have you heard it too many times? I've heard it before, yeah. so that's why I should have sniggered. Yeah, but, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um... So, right, okay, now, um, without wanting to sound like a horrible racist, I would imagine that the Anadol was a remanufactured old European car. Um... Close, insofar as it was designed by Reliant for the Turkish market. It had a Ford engine, but the body and the chassis were completely... Um, right. You know, um, Reliant built for Turkey. And, um, again, we roll forward to the 21st century, and Turks are doing 
uh, amazing restorations to Anadols, and the um, limited production Anadol sports car will, will cost you 20 grand. Wow. So what, um, what motor would that have had? Would it, what forward engine would it... Uh, it would have been the Kent, and um, I think the, they had the 1300 and the 1600, um, and they just stuck with, with the Kent all the way through, really. And, and were they ever exported? Have you have you have you any desire to go to Turkey and get one? Or are they so? Is is the nostalgia there the same nostalgia that compels British men to spend fifteen or twenty thousand pounds on a fairly ordinary Ford Escort? Is that is that alive and well in Turkey? It, Turk, Turks are happy to to pay big money for Anadols, and I'd be very happy to fly to Turkey and drive one home. So. Um, um, Someone else has already done it to the UK, so I can't um, say I'd be the first to do it. But um, and Turkey is a lovely country to go to on holiday. So uh... well, here's the thing: I in the eighties, I went to Italy um, with a pal of mine, and we took a book with us that was published the year I was born, 1964, called Lambretta Worldwide, and it had a list of every Lambretta dealer in the world at that oh. time, and it was a thick journal because I don't think people realise just how successful Innocenti and Piaggio were with their Vespa and Lambretta scooters. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you one stat quickly. Um, in 1958, Lambretta concessionaires sold more scooters in the UK than total powered two-wheeler sales over 125cc in the UK now. And Peter and Charles Ag, who owned Lambretta concessionaires, built one of the world's best collections of Ferraris off the back of Lambretta sales. I mean, the sales worldwide were huge. So we took this book with us and with very little Italian drove between the addresses once we'd landed in Milan, drove between the addresses oh, in that book to see idea. to see if they had Lambretta spare parts. No. We found entire districts that had disappeared since 1964. Not only was the building not there, the street wasn't there. Yeah. There was a shopping centre or a factory or a school. We found shops that remembered fondly the days when they'd Sold Lambretta scooters, but no, they were Malaguti, they were Peugeot, they were they were Honda. They, those days had gone. But we also found people who had stashed everything in an old barn or an old stable, packed to the rafters with brand new old stock crankcases, pistons, piston rings, badges, headlights, speedometers, seats, brand new, new old stock. That's a relief. <laughs> oh, it was yeah. it was just like going into Aladdin's cave. I mean, I, you know, it was just like that. I remember being in Piacenza, and this old boy, um, his shop was his shop was shut. But I'd said to my and my pal said, "Let's go to the next one." I said, mm, "Maybe he's having lunch across the road." And we went across, and there was a guy in orange overalls with Persia. We thought that's him, the old boy. Left him about his lunch. He's Italian. We don't want really to disturb him while he's eating his lunch. He went across the street. We followed him, and an hour later, we were in Aladdin's cave. And the only thing we had to do, of course, is. Try not to alert him to just how excited we were. <laughs> you know, it was like oh. I was holding up leg shield badges behind this guy's back to my friend who was trying to talk to him for a Lambretta SX200. Oh. And I can't tell you how much they would have cost you in the UK. Yeah. If there was any chance you could have bought them, you would have been paying for this simple little badge. And this was the 80s, 30 years ago. You would have been paying over £100. And that would have been probably for a used one. And these were brand new, wrapped up in the paper that had Innocenti printed on it. <laughs> Even the paper wrapping was valuable to Brits. But that's part of it, isn't it? That's part of this 
going to different parts of the world and engaging with their car culture mm. is a brilliant way to meet people. Exactly. Well, I think my uh, idea for you is um, uh, Iran until 2005, I think, uh, made uh, the Hillman Hunter. And um, so your task, should you choose to, <laughs> to fly to Iran, buy an Iranian Hillman Hunter and drive it home. My pal, Jeff, which I get to come on this show, he's got a very interesting uh, collection of cars. He's got about eight. Mm. And it, it, he's got one of everything that's great. He's a real... He's a, he's, so he's got a Subaru Impreza Turbo. I mean, he's got way more money that the most people that is you know the guy's loaded his his garage is underground it's like the bat cave i mean and he's he's a he's an amazing guy but he is always telling me that i have to go to iran to ride motorbikes because mm. he said you'll just have the greatest time yeah and uh fortunately his son oh well i, I won't get too far into it but he's connected his jeff and he said to me I know the right peak because I'm I'm a little apprehensive. <laughs> Normally I'm like, yeah, let's go for it. And I'm thinking, oh, Iran? Yeah. Are, are you sure? Well, it's safe, safer than London anyway. Is it? <laughs> yeah, statistically speaking. Yeah, I've so. I've I've ridden a motorbike uh, around London when I when I lived there. When I first lived in London, you got to laugh. Um, I had a, I had a Yamaha thousand, which was to me the best comp. I was I was still coming back to Manchester. I was. This is how how odd my life was at that time it's pretty odd now but it was odd then i was working in manchester and living in london <laughs> so it was yeah yeah i was living in the most expensive city in, in europe probably but i don't know paris might give it a run for its money or or, or um, madrid but anyway so i was living there and i was working in manchester so I was commuting back on this bike but when i was in london i knew everything along i knew where everything was from the river if I could get to the Thames, I knew where I was. So I would make the strangest London journeys. I'd go, go from uh, from Highbury to Stoke Newington and have to go down to the river <laughs> and back up again. It was like, I thought, what am I doing? I've got to get some sort of... But I've never been able to get on with a sat-nav on a motorbike. I've, n- I've never... I think it's too distracting. Mm, I can I th- imagine. Yeah, it is. I, I, I think so. So I've got to go to Iran. Tell us about this car. What, what am I supposed to buy, Julian? So it's called a Paycan. And it's basically... A pie-can? That's what we call somebody up here who's daft, Julian. Somebody who's not the full shilling, a pie-can. You'd be a pie-can if you bought one. (laughs) But, uh, no, I think, um, say, it's a British Hillman Hunter made under licence in Iran until, oh, about, whatever, ten years ago. And um, it's got um, a fuel-injected engine, which the Hillman Hunter never had. Is that... Can I ask you, is that because parts of Iran are mountainous? and, And... I think it was... Largely, it survived because of sanctions, because um, there's huge demand for cars in Iran. And a bit like the, the ambassador in India, there's, there's always one manufacturer who thinks, oh, well, I'll, I'll cling on and, um, and I'll keep on manufacturing this pile of junk because someone will buy it. And that's what happened with Paikan in Iran. My dad was a real man for the Roots group. Yeah. He loved it. Like, like back in the day, you could, we, we talk about fancy cars a lot on this show, but back in the day... Most British men of working-class nature, like my father, were either Ford men or Vauxhall men. And that was, that was either a Viva or an Escort or a Cortina or a Victor. Mm. And uh, anyone who strayed from those two brands, which, of course, 
Most people think of British cars. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? The Ford Motor Company of Detroit, Michigan. That's a British car, is it? Uh, right, OK. But anyway, my dad loved those Roots Groups things. We had a Chrysler, we had a Horizon, we had an Avenger. We had an Avenger Tiger briefly at one point, the twin car one. We had a Hillman Minx, we had a Super Minx. I'm sure we had a Hunter at one point. Was the Hunter a little bit up the food chain from the Minx, Julian? Yeah, just a little bit bigger. Um, drives very well. It's uh, fairly boring looking, but it's shown <laughs> that a car made in 1970 can be almost as good as, as a car made today. I mean, its fuel consumption ain't so good, but everything else is. Vinyl, vinyl upholstery, I should imagine. Oh, oh smelling in the summer. To the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, if you so you say you're down to eight cars, I, I, I won't ask you to. Uh, I won't ask you to list them. But what, what I will ask you to do is, if it had to go down to one. And somebody asked somebody asked asked me this the other day, and I said, and I told them straight away. Yeah. I said my Citroen C5 Estate because if a car's got to do every single job, mm. the the Alpha convertible can't. You can't get a mountain bike in the back of an Alpha convertible. You can't get five people. You can't sleep in it overnight. So much as I love it, I love it dearly. It's been around since 1991, yeah. and I hate hate ever to be parted from it. If I had to have one car, it would be my C5 Estate. Mm. So I ask you, Julia Noel, which car, if it could only be one, would you keep? I think I'd keep um, a uh, Wartburg Knight Estate. So <laughs> characterful three-cylinder engine, huge uh, boot. You can put uh, fridges and all sorts of you know, dead bodies and things in the boot. <laughs> and um, uh, lovely ring-a-ding exhaust note. It's and, a two-stroke, uh, isn't it? Two-stroke. And people look at you. And that, that's half the fun of owning a car is people looking at you. I always, I always think it's, it's revealing that those cars that were built under communism are often painted very jaunty colours, aren't they? Yeah, very primary colours, and, and those, those colours were cheap. I think um, the sort of hard metallic colours, the, the pigments are just more expensive, so the communists thought, well, orange, orange paint, that's cheap, green. Baby blue, my score was. It was. Honestly, if you'd bought a romper suit for a child in the, any time sort of from the war up until about the 1980s, it would have been, for a boy, it would have been this colour, baby blue. And I just wonder if it was because in those countries, dark colours were associated with dark things, i.e., the army, the security forces, etc. If you saw a black car coming down the street, you got out of the way. Because it wasn't like here, it wasn't somebody trying to be cool, it was somebody coming to ask you some awkward questions and shine a light in your face. <laughs> is, there, is there any truth in that? Or am I, 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 think, I think you're right, really, and uh, they can be seen in... Uh... If you watch Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, it's always a black car or a dark grey car or something, something like that. Yeah. I've noticed the rise of brown cars. Have you not... The, or the resurgence. Have you noticed that? I, I'm totally in favour, and it's even better. Beige foods, beige cars, and beige houses. Life doesn't get better. <laughs> you, do you, you, you're on the trip to Chernobyl. Can we just talk about that sort of before we have to go? Is, is that car-related, or is that kind of no, what an interesting place to go to? That's a sort of dereliction-related, and, and basically people who like Soviet cars probably like Soviet dereliction and brutalist architecture and um, the sadness of a, of, a, of a city that's been abandoned uh, in the 1980s with trees growing through roads and um, 
Julian, most British people, when they're thinking of a holiday, they th- they think of, like, you know, a fortnight in Ibiza or or maybe all-inclusive to, to Cancun or or maybe a, a city break in, in New York. They do not think of going to one of the most notorious places on the planet. I think I should start up sort of a company called Melancholy Tourism because there's something about going to a, a place where there's high levels of pollution or... Um, just a sort of depressing post-industrial landscape. Do you know what I, I, I felt was like that? I went to South Korea, to Seoul, in the, in the early 90s, and I got there and I thought, I was in my hotel room and a helicopter went past. Past my room, I was on, like, the 34th floor. A helicopter went past and I looked in the street and there was neon and, and massive screens everywhere and an elderly woman pulling a cart stacked with firewood. And I thought, I'm in Blade Runner. Yes. I'm, in, I'm in the movie. Yes. I'm in Blade Runner. Really? I, it's like, I, I, and, I, and I thought, a lot of people would find this scenario vaguely horrific. Look at that shoeless woman dragging the firewood past the... It, it was that juxtaposition of incredible tech and a tech explosion yeah. with, basically, the Middle Ages. You know, what that poor woman was having to do... A, a, People have been having to do for not hundreds, probably thousands of years. But it was right next to a helicopter going past my because it was legal there. A helicopter going past my window. You know, I could see the people in the helicopter. I thought, "What the hell?" I'm in Blade Runner, and I thought, "Yeah." I, I kind of got past beach holidays a while ago. I thought, if I want to be on a beach, I want to be, be on a beach in Hillman Hunter with a man on the roof ironing, and that's how I ended up going out your rally. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um... Yeah, sort of Blade Runner holidays could take off one day. I mean, uh, it's a possibility. But um, the other good thing about uh, holidays to, to, to gloomy places is that... <laughs> no, that's, that's what you've got to call it, Julian. Holidays to gloomy places.co.uk. I think that's the name. So, well, it's been done. It's been done, hasn't it, by Banksy? Yes, it has. Because uh, what was it? He did it in Margate. What was it? Dismal Land was it called? It was a, right. it was a play on yeah. Disneyland. I never saw it, but wanted to. Well, it was massively oversubscribed, I think. So I think you were onto something because yeah. you know I, I don't. I've been to Margate and it was shut. <laughs> I think I borrowed that joke from Eric Morecambe, <laughs> but I've also been to Morecambe and that was shut as <laughs> that yeah. was shut as well. But before you go, um. You've owned such a, a wide variety of vehicles and had so many different uh, motoring experiences and, and started banger rallies. You, you have changed a lot of people's lives by doing that, mate. I, I, I've met people not just that have been on your run down to, down to the Gambia or, or into, uh, into Mali, but people who've done the, the Fiat Panda raids across Europe and, you know, been out to uh, Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia in, in a little fiat and stuff like that. It, it really does change people because you see things, doing it that way, you see things... I remember, right, OK, before we go, I'll tell you why what, what you started is, is such a big deal. I was on a beach in Mauritania and I could see Tenerife. I could see Tenerife in the distance and I thought, five years ago I was there with some friends... And I if and we had a very traditional British Tenerife holiday. We went there, we paid one amount of money for our plane, our hotel, our food. We got drunk every night, we lay by the pool the next day to, to kind of cure the hangover, and then we got drunk again. And if you said to me, had I been there, I've been there. 
but had I been there? I stood on the beach next to a load of guys who were fishing on the beach with giant homemade fishing rods and sheltering in these huts from the insane sun and thought, I think I've been there, but I've definitely been here where I am right now. I stood next to these men. Who, did somebody told me that they, they have these little shelters and then their houses are just shacks that are in, in the trees on the edge of the beach. And that's how they live, by, by fishing, like my dad would fish on the River Irwell here in Lancashire, except that's their living. And you think, I've definitely been here, and I think anyone who's thinking about going on one of these rallies and thinking, can I spare the time, can I spare the money, uh, is there some risk involved? Yes, there is, but it's worth it. It really is worth it because you actually, by driving, by driving and, and, and going to places where it, everything isn't laid on for you, everything isn't paid for, you've got to be self-reliant 24-7. You really do see a place and you really do experience a place. Yeah, it makes friends for life, I think, the teammates that you've travelled with and uh, even enemies for life, but at least, <laughs> at least you live. Enemies for life. Right, so you've got to start up two websites. Well, what was what, what was it? Holidaystodismalplaces.co.uk and enemiesforlife.co.uk where people can uh, recount their stories of how they've, they've, they've fallen foul of somebody. Yeah. Oh, Julian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank I've you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think I've, I, once again I've talked too much, but it's because... I, it's been a chance for me to to thank you for what you did with oh. with no Julian. Other people must have told you it was a real eye opener for me. I saw things. I saw horrific poverty up close, right in front of me. I could see it. I could smell it. When people talk to me about poverty, I think you don't know what you're talking about until you've been to these places. I also saw and met incredibly resilient, brave, great people who were living in those sort of places, but managing to live and, and, and have some sort of joy in life. And people who, when we arrived, treated us as honoured guests, you know, even though we were just, as, as I believe John Lydon once just said, uh, cheap holiday and other people's misery. There, there was that element for me. I was thinking, are we just kind of... The thing about what you do is you're not flaunting your wealth like like the 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 original Paris Dakar, which I think started with the best intentions, just turned into. No wonder they had to leave because it was just like, yeah, we're we're spending a million dollars a day US, and you people are, are scratching by on a dollar fifty a day, just barely existing, and we're just using your country as a playground. What we did, what you inspired us to do which was to take the vehicles, the cheapest vehicles we could find, and then to donate them to those people. I was a lot happier doing that than I would have been going there and going, look how rich we are, get out of my way. Mm, yeah. yeah. I think um, there, it, it's, there's a sort of serendipity to it. It, it, it works, and um, you know, it works on all sorts of different levels, A, for local good causes, and B, yep, as you were saying, it uh, changes characters. What's the website? Uh, address again, Julie. So if you just Google uh, Dakar Challenge, D-A-K-A-R, and then Challenge, uh, you'll find it. That's it for another episode of Speed Shop. Tell your friends about the show, and uh, don't forget, we have a podcast, the Steve's Speed Shop Podcast, where you can listen again here on Fab Radio.